Welcome to the Gals Guide to the Galaxy podcast, where a group of gals gather for you one cool thing around our topic of the month. Is it ancient history? Is it breaking news? Is it safe for work? Well, that's up to each gal. All we know is that... Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Welcome back. I'm Katie, and it's Women's History Month at Gals Guide. I'm joined by Bonnie, Josh, and Leah talking about our one cool thing. We've already talked about the women's suffrage heroes. We've talked about Lisa Meitner, and I introduced you to the Indiana Women's History Trail. But before we dive back in, let's get to know something random about our gal pals. My one question is, when did you start to see history as something more than names and dates? I think I... I think I can remember and I'm not positive, but off the top of my head, I think it's actually ironically because of that guy, the guy that's on the podcast, my husband, because I really did see it like a lot of it was names and dates. Um, But we would go to museums and you would find stuff on maps and you would talk about like you would talk about history as if it was family, as if it was like a cool story of like somebody you went to school with and you just talked about it differently. So I kind of thought about it differently. Um, So I would say then, and then, so I was in my twenties, so it took me a bit. It was not necessarily in school. The only thing in school that was kind of close was there was they talked about um martin luther king jr and they had one sentence and it said also at that time was someone named malcolm x or another civil rights leader named malcolm x and i was like why does he only get a sentence (laughs) like are we gonna learn about him that's interesting and then spike lee had a movie come out about malcolm x and i'm like well then i will watch that because it was one sentence in my history book and apparently that's all this man gets and then i was absolutely amazed by his story but it was still like names and dates until until i met josh so that's what i'm going with (laughs) what about you josh for something um how'd you get there i don't know when it first started i middle school i i don't i hated school at that time so it probably was in high school and you know it started just with like i sat next to the map in government class and that class was always easy so i spent most of my time looking at the map and then that helped to connect the the things we're learning in history the places that these things were going on and i still am not a i love history but i'm not a big fan of memorizing names and dates because i think that comes with studying history Mm. if you study it like a story just like with any story the names and the dates will will become familiar over time yeah and when you start at it from well you have to remember the kings of england and the queens of england and the dates of their reigns and stuff like that well that's hideously boring but it seems like a lot of work the stories of how they got there are in what breeding. The important I believe part. we covered it. Yes, yeah. we did. <laughs> and that's the 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 interesting part of it. And that's what mm-hmm. got me. And like, kind of like you said, if you treat it like a, a story about your family, then it it kind of personalizes it a little bit more. And then you can get into those nuances. And and I find a lot of times, list, watching like uh, genealogy shows or even just documentaries. The, the the real of what happened is way more interesting than the movie adaption version. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of times they will have a tendency to 
over-dramatize things or change history to make it more interesting. To dramatize it. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times the history is, to me, dramatic enough. You don't need to do that with it. So it was it was probably in high school when when I first started really getting into that kind of stuff. And I think it was partly because history came easy to me, so I kind of already knew it. And so I became bored and kind of just developed my own way of thinking about history. Same. What Bonnie, about you, Bonnie? Yeah. <laughs> just turns I know, exactly, all sorry. At the same time. We all, <laughs> we all slowly turned. <laughs> Rapid fire oh, glances man. at the Bonnie. And you... <laughs> Oh, well, I was a big nerd in school. Sweet. Look at you. Overachiever. Over glasses. <laughs> um, uh, there, there was one time in sixth grade, I remember we were reading from the book, and we're doing history class, and I see a big long E word, and I'm like, oh, I know that word. Talk about the, the uh, Tigris and Epidermis River, <laughs> and my teacher cracked up. Epidermis River. <laughs> I was like, that's a long, that's Epidermis. <laughs> I know that word. <laughs> Future yeah. doctor, Bonnie Fellensworth. <laughs> yes. Um, I got I got really into Greek mythology and kind of ancient yes. cultures. Um, history class for me it was this the same things over and over again. You start with the Tigris and Euphrates River, mm-hmm. you do Egypt and you do the Middle Ages. Yep. You do the Civil War. It's like the same things over and over like we always ran out of time too, so I wasn't even. This is don't like. I really don't know that much about like World War One, right? Like you don't we know did, about the always, Nazis, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> we just kind of ran out of time. Um, like I remember watching Doctor Who, and they always go back to the Blitz. I'm like, what is this thing? Right? Yeah, like, very true. I don't know. So I've had to do a lot of like adult education. Because I really wanted to find, like, we had always had History of the Western World, is what they were always yeah. called. I was like, what about the Eastern? I can't find How a about History the other of the areas? Eastern World book. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> but, no, I got really into, like, Greek mythology and ancient cultures. I minored in classical studies in college. And my senior thesis for my painting class, I did, like, kind of how women get the bad rap in like greek mythology yeah and being like this is still relevant because we're still teaching these stories exactly people can still get their degrees in this it becomes cyclical almost too right yeah Yeah. like people made sure to preserve these stories and write them down over time and i just kind of turned it into instead of like bitching and complaining about how bad these stories were i started researching like Real women. Like, I remember mm-hmm. doing um, Theodora of Constantinople yeah. during classical studies and being like, she's awesome. See? And I started doing, like, the actual woman, which is how it's led me to here. I think uh, Theodosia's Burr mm. got their name from the... Probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's, like, a ship or something, too. Oh, okay. That sounds about right. That would be a nice name for a ship. <laughs> and visiting histor- historical sites is it it helps a lot with mm-hmm. becoming it because as a as a little kid, my since my dad was in the Air Force, we lived in Italy, and then we went back when I was eight, and we went to Greece and Italy, and so I got to see a lot of that stuff, and so that helped really get me interested in European history. And for a long time, I really was bored with American history, but. Getting out and traveling to places where it's happened 
it it really helps to to bring it to, to yeah. life and make it interesting because it's what am i looking at and yeah. so you want the context of what you're looking at and i i like to read but ultimately i like to also be able to physically go there and see it and that's again something that indiana needs to work on is is doing that because there is so much rich history as far as native americans go women history Mm -hmm. women's history minority history in general and it's it's maybe a plaque on a road somewhere and that's that's all it is and you know i i got on this trip one day of looking at native american sites in indiana and there's so few that are actually marked and have any sort of historical marker to them mm-hmm. and a, a lot of the native american uh, burial mounds and stuff around the state have been plowed under for farming yeah. even up at straw town Kettlewee, where they made a big deal out of it there they were digging through grave goods and taking grave goods from the graves and you're not supposed to do that. It's right, exactly. Illegal. That's sacred space. Yeah. yeah. And Don't it, get cursed. It, yes. Well, no. I've seen a lot they of should, the Stephen the King people that did it that, should be. that's based on. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's history sometimes in Indiana gets kind of a short shrift, I think. And I think that's hopefully one thing that Gal's Guide can help change. We're trying. Exactly. Katie, what about you? Um, Like you guys, I needed to see it and see it in a different way. Um, It wasn't necessarily the stories at first that drew me in, because I can remember it distinctly. I went on a trip in high school up to Chicago, and at one of the museums, I bought this giant book of, I think it was the 100 most, um, I don't know if I want to say influential, but the highest impact photos from history. Gotcha. I still have the book. I should look at the actual title mm-hmm. instead of all that rambling I just did. You're good. <laughs> but anyway, seeing those like super powerful images, like just one part, and a lot of them were taken of, um, you know, really tragic events that happened in history, and it would show how it affected one person. And I don't know, yeah. it just really sucked me in so much more than just reading about it in a history book. It was kind of the visual. Mm-hmm. You got the visual place. You got the person relating to it. The first, when you were saying that, the first one I thought of is like the Dust Bowl image of mm-hmm. that, the woman in kind of like the, the makeshift tent. She's got her kid and she's thinking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really does. It captivates the, the time and place and the sense of being and stuff like that. So yeah. I am much more of a visual learner. So I appreciate the photograph and the painting. And individualizing <laughs> and it. And the travel sites. Yeah. Gives you that character and nuance to yeah. it. Because if you just hear, you know, oh, in the Civil War, 10,000 people died. I mean, that's tragic, but it, it's just a number. You have to where, humanize the number. Yeah, when you say, you know, this young man who is 18, his family and widow, and, and you know, and you right. personalize This it. is what their journey was. Yeah. And then, then you're connected to that journey, and then they, you know, and then they don't make it. It's like, okay, so now there's thousands more like this. Yeah, and it gives you <laughs> yeah. that that feeling about because history is a to me is about feeling mm-hmm. and when you just do dates and stuff there's no feeling behind numbers right in on a page and um you know when you start personalizing i think that's that's when it helps quite a lot yeah exactly well are you guys ready for uh my one cool thing yes. lay it on all right well let's see what you think <laughs> 
<laughs> so um Carl Lagerfeld, uh he died and that dude's weird. I don't know if you guys know this dude. Um I shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I do when it comes to him. He has like white hair, ponytail. Pull up a picture of him. Dear God, because I'm sure once you see him, you'll be like, oh, no, no, no. We're um, talking deep tan. We're t- not really. Okay, but like a little bit of a fakey. Right. A little okay. bit of a fakey okay. tan, but I'm not sure. It could be moisturizer, honestly. <laughs> um, But uh, he wears sunglasses all the time. He's that dude. And he wears leather gloves. All the time. He looks like a villain of oh, that Zoolander. Guy. He's mm-hmm. straight up Zoolander villain. And I know it's a podcast. We'll put up a picture in case you, mm-hmm. you don't have an, a visual seared into your memory of the Carl Lagerfeld who who passed on. Uh, but uh, but it does. It, it feels like he picked his look basically from three bad 1980s songs and just kind of like went with that. Um, well, he's been the head of Chanel for the last 30 years. So yeah. And it just, uh, his death got me thinking about Coco Chanel again. So, um, and Coco Chanel, she just has a very weird, uh, relationship with hip- women's history. That's why I thought she might be a good one to like bring up and talk about, uh, because her history has almost been rewritten to a certain extent, um, to kind of, give her longevity and i find it weird (laughs) um now on our sister show that i'm on with phoebe freer uh called your gal friday we did do we did an episode on coco it was number three it was our third episode was about coco chanel and we struggled with coco's history then and it's now been two years and i'm still struggling with coco chanel's history i'm just saying um so i thought kind of as a monster i would bring it up on this show and we could discuss in little bits here and there um because maybe it's just a unique case. Like maybe it's just Coco, you know what I mean? Or maybe it's something that repetitively happens throughout women's history. Um, Now, because I worked with Phoebe and we wrote a 13 page thesis statement on Coco Chanel, and I didn't ask you, you lovely people to do that. I will give you the highlights. Okay. (laughs) I'll give you like the little refresher uh, of Coco's life. And then we'll see if we can make any sense of this together. But I'm curious, as a benchmark, um, what is the first thing that comes to mind when I say Coco Chanel? Like, what is your, when I say Coco, what's the first thing you think what's of? What's my word association? Yes, exactly. I'm going to yes. go with perfume. Perfume. Okay, mm-hmm. fair. Yeah. Uh, perfume, say it, isn't it? The little black dress? Yes. Mm-hmm. Little black dress? Yeah, the same. The little black dress. Okay. Coco and perfume. Chanel, the okay. Number five. Perfect. There you go. Well, these will all come back into play with some of my questions later. All right. So, because I think when when we talk about Coco Chanel, a lot of times we're actually talking about two different things. We're talking about the brand and we're talking about the person. And a lot of times the things that we think of are the objects are related with her name on it. <laughs> Not necessarily her. This is true of a lot of other, you know, famous women of history, too. But, like, oddly, um, it's also about Coco. So, the real person wasn't even born as Coco Chanel. She was born as Gabrielle Chanel. At least the last name's right, right? Um, But she was born in 1883. She grew up poor in France. Her mother died when she was 12. And her father just couldn't be bothered. So, uh, he spent, he sent her and her brothers to an orphanage where she was there. Yeah, he just couldn't be bothered. What? He just couldn't. No. He's like, no, this is too much. There was even talk about like they her parents weren't married for many years until her mother's family convinced the dude to get married. They had 
five children together and he couldn't be bothered with it. So I'm not totally surprised. He's a gem. (laughs) Right. So when she got out of the orphanage, uh, she was a seamstress by day and a cabaret singer by night. And when I say cabaret singer, I mean she sung in between the star's performances and they passed a plate around so she could get paid something basically. Um, She also really kind of only sang about two songs, and both of them had the word Coco in it. Therefore, her nickname became Coco, and it just kind of like stuck with her, basically. Um, Now, it is no mistake or happy accident at all, but Coco ended up meeting and having a very lengthy relationship with two rich white dudes, okay? Just saying. Um, Both of whom she could not marry because she was an orphan, and they were an heir to a certain dynasty. So, yeah. Now, one was a French dude, uh, Etienne Basson. Did I overpronounce the French? No, you had I was close, though. I was almost overdoing it on the Basson. No, you were good. (laughs) Uh, But he was the heir to a wealthy textile fortune. So, textiles, fabrics. Mm. She's going to become a fashion designer. Interesting. Coincidence? No, I don't think so. Uh, It would be Boy Capel from England who would actually buy her her first shop right? Gave her a little plaything. Interesting. Uh, She sold hats. Um, She created the little black dress, like Bonnie remembered. She also created the sailor blouse and other stylish casual clothes. Now, in the early 1900s, women were still in corsets, and they were wearing long layered dresses. But when World War I started, there was a fabric shortage, and also women were in factory jobs where their layered clothing were actually killing them because they were getting stuck in the machinery that was not designed for these layered clothing man that sucks i mean like people's jobs suck but getting like you know basically killed by your own clothing because of it yeah it's horrible uh so coco used fabrics like jersey i am wearing jersey this evening i love jersey um but jersey was in steady supply because it was used to make men's underwear that's right (laughs) so with this underwear fabric she made stylish clothes out of it including (gasps) pants for women what (gasps) little rebel uh now when you read about coco you're most likely to hear that uh quote she changed the way women dress this is something that's in like almost every uh in-depth bio about her and there are days where i feel like it's a serious exaggeration and there are other days where i'm like yeah she totally did that so it just kind of like depends on the day um but what coco did was she was in the right place at the right time and she had the right friends So that's kind of the equation of it. Her connection to high society was in France and England, thanks to her lovers. That's right. (laughs) Uh, And it made a huge difference in her circle of influences. So because like fashion is a top down trend is basically what happens. The rich start a trend. They're photographed or they're seen wearing it and they're asked about it. Right. Uh, It becomes the new style. Then a middle class want to, quote, rise above their station and they want to wear and be you know what the high society are doing so then once the middle class are wearing it the designers then start a new trend and they sell it to the high society again and it starts all over again so also coco didn't invent this this has been around pretty much since the beginning of time it's just a business tactic that is fashion uses so um but do you think that this still exists today do you think designers getting celebrities and high society people you guys still see this (laughs) oh yeah definitely (laughs) 
Right. So the Coco scenario still goes on today. So even though Coco is credited with getting women out of corsets, uh, what really helped, in my view anyway, is a combination of the Roaring Twenties, uh, women's suffrage, the Great Depression of 1929, where you want to get less clothing on your person because it's expensive, right? Um, and then also Coco dressing high society women in this sporty and casual elegance as well had the trickle down. So to put it bluntly, uh, or not so bluntly, it's like a trifle. Uh, you can see the individual layers of it, but once you put it on your plate, it's just one big mess. <laughs> So the perfume, right? So because you guys, a few of you remember the perfume is what Coco is uh, famous for. Now, the inception of the perfume is a little bit complicated. There are many lies out there about the perfume because they're trying to sell you the perfume. So they'll make up whatever they're going to make up. Um, But yes, so it is kind of hard to straight to get it straight. But what seems to be the story or at least the story that I'm hearing most often, uh, is that she met a perfumer and she asked him to create a scent and he offered her multiple options, all right? Now, there are many reasons why it's called Chanel Number no. 5. It could be it's the fifth bottle she chose. Uh, it could be that it was a number that she liked. She also said at one point, she shows her collection in the fifth month of May, so it fits with her brand. We don't know. It's number five is what it is. Uh, the story changes throughout time. Um, in 1924, Coco sold the perfume to the Wertimer brothers, who then in turn gave her a percentage of the sales and money for licensing her name. Well, then World War II happened. Oh, World War II. That means we're talking about the Nazis again. <laughs> Always oh, the Nazis. I know. It just keeps coming uh well coco closed her shop saying quote it is not time for fashion she did however keep selling chanel number five throughout the entire war many of them two nazi soldiers uh that were occupying france at the time so Coco lived most of her adult life in the Hotel Ritz in Paris. She did have other properties. Many of them were given to her by, uh, you know, other rich men. Just saying. Uh, but when the Nazis occupied Paris, the upper echelon of German military also stayed at the Hotel Ritz. Interesting. Uh, so this is where her story gets really complicated. Some claim the documents identify Coco as a Nazi spy. Oh, yeah, that's fun. The House of Chanel refutes this claim. Of course they do. They are a business after all. Um, so there are a lot of interpretations of her documents, of gossip, of speculation about it at the time. Um, so there's also something to the effect of her being a spy is she was trying to get her German friends to meet her English friends, i.e. Churchill, for some kind of like peace accord, some kind of, you know, mutual beneficial society at the end of the war is kind of what the story is but even that is like really varied and muted with different sources of who's telling it um now coco was interrogated by the free french purge committee in 1944 she was released uh she was requested to appear at a war crime trial where she denied all accusation of being a spy so she had her time in court and said no i'm not <laughs> Now, Coco did have powerful friends on many sides of the war. We're talking about Churchill. We're talking about the Duke of Westminster of England, the Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich of Russia, and her neighbor, finger quotes, at the Hotel Ritz, which was Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage of German military intelligence. By the way, that is a mouthful 
of a name. I just like that it's Dinklage and it always makes me think of the current working actor. (laughs) Uh, Add to that, that she would also kind of fund left-wing newspapers and right-wing newsletters. Like the gal actually played both sides on a lot of different things in her life. Um, She didn't know which side was going to win the war. I mean, she was in an occupied country, you know, maybe the occupied forces are going to win. She didn't know. I also kind of think it's survival instinct to a certain extent. It might even go back to being abandoned at an orphanage, right? You know, somebody's going to abandon her now in this time of her life. She just didn't know who it was going to be. Was it going to be Paris? Or was it going to be Germany? <laughs> she wasn't sure. Uh, do I think that's noble? Uh, no, I don't. Do I understand it? Sure. <laughs> But do you think her trying to stay on both sides was like a survival tactic or something else? Or what are you guys' thoughts on that part? Because it's weird. Because it's weird. (laughs) Yeah, I think it definitely goes back to her being abandoned and being adopted. I think that she learned to survive by any means. You see it a lot of times in different people throughout history. Survivor cases. Yeah, where they, you know, hedge their bets, basically, where they become friends on both sides of conflicts because they don't want to be left out completely either way they just they're they're gonna survive and they're gonna be successful by any means that they have available to them and if that means not helping the nazis but maybe you know turning a blind eye to what they're doing and selling them things perfumery she probably saw that as just her trying to keep herself alive and not really delving too deep into the complexities of what the nazis were doing the the less you know the the safe you are ignorance maybe bliss right exactly nazis am i right <laughs> Nazis. <laughs> so i recently learned that um the Hummel figurines yeah, yeah. got really popular because people were buying them in Europe during World War II oh. and bringing them back. Oh. I'm like, what kind of stuff are they all just perfume and Hummels? And and that's the thing that you buy and bring back? Something that breakable? I mean, I'm just, okay, all right. <laughs> there was like, there's camp and then there's a Hummel shop like right yeah. next to it or something like that. Next to like a Chanel number five on the corner or something interesting did she ever like think about like leaving she left during the invasion um there was one documentary that i remember watching where many people were leaving on foot and on boat you know and it was chaotic the difference was coco was leaving in a chauffeured car Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so it was like yeah she had a cushy ride as she escapes and flees occupation but she came back during the occupation though she wasn't gone the entire time but those opening scary days when Hitler showed up, apparently then she decided to go for a little bit. And that's part of the weird thing with her is like she came back and then she stayed there. And then right. when they did all these trials and stuff, I, I think in one of the documentaries that we watched, they said that like the transcripts and stuff are secret and they no one knows why she just. I think one of them just said she wasn't questioned, that she was released. There was not enough evidence. Yeah. Is usually what they end up saying about that particular file. You can find the file number and everything, but I haven't seen, like, here's a PDF of the file. Well, right. No, no. I was just trying (laughs) to remember because she was was questioned. There was not enough evidence for any conviction, and so she was released. 
And and there was a lot of weird murky stuff where like supposedly she could have gotten help from Winston Churchill to get off on any sort of charges and things like that because she was friends with so many people. And mm-hmm. I think in the end, I don't think she did anything bad enough where she probably should have been thrown in jail as a war criminal. We'll never know. But <laughs> you know, it's probably more sketchy morally than anything. You know. See, exactly. Well, in 1947, Coco renegotiated the Chanel Number no. 5 contract with the Wernimer brothers, giving her wartime profits, 2% of the profits going forward, and free living expenses for the rest of her life. All right. Uh, they now owned the business, though. So now they own Chanel. Um, but it did make Coco one of the most richest women in the world. And she made her own money. <laughs> Well, I mean, after some dudes helped her out, but it was her own money with her name on it. So it's pretty cool, right? Well, France was very mad at her and they were done with her. They were just absolutely done. Uh, They did not like her power or her abuse of power or playing both sides or who knows, whatever, you know, she actually did that we don't know, or at least that we're speculating about sort of thing. Um, So, but here's the thing. Does it matter? Um, As far as history is concerned, not really, because we still paint her as the one who changed the world in so many ways. It's quite interesting. Um, She made a huge comeback in 1954. Her main customers were British and American women. Those were her main customers at that point, even though she was still making clothes in Paris that did not care about her whatsoever. She was there as kind of like, no, this is hot couture. This is pre-de-porter. This is Paris. And British and Americans were buying it up. Um, The other thing is she pretty much made custom jewelry or costume jewelry a thing. Like that was her invention and popularization. The idea was rich women didn't want to have their expensive jewels like stolen or worried about them breaking while they were out. So you could make a crap ton of fake pearls and wear them out and then clutch them anytime that you wanted to um, and pretend like middle class women pretending that they had, you know, rich, you know, uh, strands and strands of pearls, basically. She also created the Chanel suit, which always makes me think of Jackie Kennedy Onassis. You know the one I'm talking about, the pink and black one? Or she wore a variety of them, of the white and black ones. So that's the Chanel suit. Um, And then Marilyn Monroe gave Chanel a boatload of free advertising that they used for decades. Like, I swear, they're probably going to, like, recircle recircle this one really soon. But um, Marilyn Monroe was asked in an interview what she wears to bed, and she said, only a drop of Chanel. Now, number five. Oh, that made them so much money. You have no idea. <laughs> they constantly use that quote. My goodness. Um, so Coco was actually designing up until her death in 1971. She was 87 years old and she died at the Hotel Ritz in Paris, but she was buried in Switzerland. I thought that was kind of interesting that she stayed in Paris, but her body was not buried there. Interesting. Now, weirdly... I don't know why. I know she had houses there. And ironically, one of the stories is the German dude, the military intelligence dude. They ran away to Switzerland together. And I'm like, is it because that's where her happy place was with the German military dude after the like, it's weird, right? Yeah, very weird. 
So I don't know why she was buried there when she's like, yeah, well, obviously Paris, you know, and France was like, we're done with you. So maybe it's part of that. But also here's another weirdly. So Karl Lagerfeld back to uh, weird guy. Number one, um, he loved reminding people that he was German. That was his big thing. Like, I am a German designer who runs the house of Chanel. Like, he wouldn't stop mentioning how much he is German. Um, And it was weird. But he had control over the brand and he used Coco's likeness um, and her story. And I'm using finger quotes on a podcast because Carl would direct many movies that were, what if Coco Chanel met Josephine Baker? And then made a movie about it. What if Coco met this person? Like, people she never met. (laughs) But it was a movie. And then he would make movies that seemed like biographies. Like, this is Coco at her first hat store. It's not. It has nothing to do with the history. It's just his imagination of rebranding who in the world Coco was. Um, And it was completely completely bizarre um so i said at the top of this that coco has a very weird relationship with women's history like being rewritten um for her longevity and i'm actually not entirely blaming coco on that i will firmly blame carl for a lot of it (laughs) and just also marketing and advertising in general honestly um but it's my first question so does becoming a brand turn a person into an object Because some of the first things that you guys had thought of when you thought of Coco were objects. Is that because she's, you know what I mean? She's like, she's gone past human Mm -hmm. (laughs) to object to icon object status sort of thing. (laughs) What do you guys think? I would think most people would be able to recognize the perfume bottle. But if you had like a picture of her photos, I don't think you could pick her out. This is true. A friend of mine did one of those quizzes, like, which celebrity are you most like? And it said your answer is Coco Chanel. And it was a picture of, oh, no, I can't. But it wasn't a picture of Coco Chanel. Like, that was the thing. And I'm like, no, that's really, really cool and all. But that, it, who's the lead in West Side Story? It was the lead in West Side Story. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> but that's who it was. And I'm like, yeah, so people don't even know what she looks like. But they know what that bottle looks like, right? Mm-hmm. I'm the person on the internet that will email people and be like, you have the wrong photo. (laughs) Like, there's some website that has a picture of, it's supposed to be an article for uh, Sybil Lungington. Yeah. But they have Henrietta Swan Leavitt's photo. Oh. I'm like, this is not related. Like, I've emailed them a few times. And they're still, yeah, exactly. Is there an actual picture of Sybil? Because I know there's a statue. Statue. There's a, um, not a photo there there's something where they're not quite sure if it is really her oh, it's like a gotcha. watercolor or something Once interpretation older. maybe it was natalie wood by the way was the lady i was trying to think of mm-hmm. natalie wood is wearing basically a shirt like coco designed mm-hmm. but it's natalie wood it's not coco chanel just saying mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, do you guys think that coco would have cared about the blurring lines of her of her history or an oversimplification of her nest sort of thing. Just as long as you were buying her perfume and her clothes, <laughs> she'd probably be most well fine with it. I mean, yeah, I don't know if she really cared about her legacy and her image and stuff like that. I don't know if she really cared at all about that kind of stuff. I mean, she was a survivor, so I think, um, and always reinventing herself. Yeah. And, 
I think she eventually was able to reinvent herself enough that the people of France kind of forgot about all that stuff. The, her supposed collaboration with the Nazis. And I don't even like know that. if the people of Fran- France have forgotten or not. I don't know. I mean, I know that I know it's not as had. big a deal now, <laughs> right? I'm sure if you ask, I wonder if they're still holding on to that. I'm just saying. Yeah, I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> they're like Napoleon, yay, Chanel. No, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm guessing. <laughs> but supposedly, Karl Lagerfeld did a lot to repair that image. Repair. Yes. But at the same time, he <laughs> has his confused. own. I think yeah, that's well, a better that's, word for it. <laughs> and he has his own issues with racism and things like that. And so he's, you know, it's. He has a lot of foot in mouth disease. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Yeah. As, as famous people are wont to do. Well, you know, say something ridiculous. Suddenly, free publicity. I guess my, my final question I have is, is it best to be known for something than to be obscured by history for being too complicated? Because, like, if women are too complicated, they're not known at all. It's like, you know, um, uh, who is it I was thinking about? Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells. It's like, okay, um, she gets cluttered in my mind because she's known for a lot of things. Like, I have a hard time pinpointing her as one particular thing. And so I kind of like, yeah, I know her name. And like I was saying on Katie's episode where it's just like, I know the name. What do I know it for? So is it better to be known for something than to be obscured completely by history? One thing's really bad. (laughs) If the one thing's Nazis, <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> and there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that are. I think their lives get so complicated that all you get is the Cliff Notes version of it. So with Coco Chanel, it is complicated. So people drop out all the Nazi stuff, and oh, she invented perfume. And she invented the little black dress, mm-hmm. and she's a fashion icon, and that's the that's what you get. I think after a while, if it's too complicated, people tend to give up on what all that story is and just go for the easy to swallow stuff. Right, the couple of sentences. Yeah, yeah, they can fit on a placard. <laughs> because I can still then go, I can still buy all that Chanel product, of course, guilt free, and, yes. and not feel any guilt about it because oh. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's very expensive stuff. (laughs) That makes no sense. I have a different sense of guilt just based on the price tag alone. (laughs) (laughs) That's a different thing. (laughs) But yes, that was my one cool take. Awesome. You'll have to let me know in your Wallace Simpson research that they met up. I think they did, actually. Yeah, well, because uh, Coco was, uh, she was dating the Duke of Westminster, mm. and it was I right around that same time, I'm sure there was, there had to be a party or something, you know what I mean? And the Duke of Westminster has ties back to a previous uh, one cool thing you brought up. Well, she also dated um, Grosvenor. Yeah, that's the Duke of Westminster. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry, I keep forgetting. That family's his name last is like name a is Ford, Yeah, he has like a four-name name. Yeah. And I just, for, I'm like, Grosvenor is the last bit. But yeah, uh, the Duke of Westminster, and it's easier for me to say that than his four-name name. When I brought up the Faker Fortune mm. episode, mm-hmm. one of the art historians is Bendor Grosvenor, who is related to the Duke of Westminster. So it just all comes back. Are all of my one cool things tied together? We'll find out later. (laughs) (laughs) There's a desperate thread holding them all together. Only if you find it. I'm just saying, because I did not intend. (laughs) 
Well, that wraps it up for Women's History Month. Thank you to our gal pals. Join us next month as we gather another group of gal pals with one cool thing for gaming month. Thanks for listening. For show notes, links, and images from this week's show, visit galsguide.org. Want exclusive stuff like deleted bits and major bloopers? Become a Gals Guide patron today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>